Let's pray. God, in these next few minutes, we just beg that you'll be enjoyed. We hope that these last few minutes, as we've expressed our gratitude in song, that it has been a pleasant um, sound. Uh, it's been fueled by true hearts. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, and I just pray that you have been uh, worshipped this morning already. Pray in these next few minutes that as we lay our lives bare to the exposed word, that we'll come in low and come in teachable and come in hungry. Lord, also we want to pray for a sister church in our community. I want to pray for Aldersgate Church this morning and uh, Rick Prettyman and his family. Lord, I pray for Rick, first of all, for his worship, that it is rich, vibrant, living that he's raging after you and reveling in what you show him. I pray that it's <clears throat> transforming him and spilling over onto his family, first of all, his marriage, and that his family sees a man that's the same man in the pulpit that's the same man at home on Tuesday. It's the same man that's pastoring those in need and encouraging those in the faith. Lord, I pray for this church, that they will be a church that is enjoying truth and is, has you at the center of the gospel and not man. I pray that it's through the exposition, exposition of the word week by week that you will build that church to where they don't have room to seat everybody. But more than numerical growth, Lord, we pray for faithfulness. And we know that you are the Lord of the harvest and the Lord of the garden and that you give the increase. But we beg for great things for Aldersgate, for your glory. Lord, we also pray that if we have an opportunity to serve alongside them, whether in an official way or unofficial or just working beside Aldersgate members um, at L3 or Rubbermaid or wherever we might work, that you'll guard our hearts from ever having a spirit of competition, but that we can hope and pray for great things for them, for your glory. Lord, we turn these next few moments over to you for your glory and pray that this little people will be engaging you rightly. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Let me give you a map kind of where we're going biblically so you can make these notes and put these, these kind of have these handy in your Bible. Acts chapter 7, and I'm going to move quickly. Acts chapter 7, Deuteronomy 7. Daniel 9. Hmm. Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, and Revelation. Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, and Revelation. That's just kind of a bird's eye view. I like to give folks a heads up that need to look in the table context, contents. Don't be ashamed of that. <clears throat> just I want you to be able to see where we're going. This morning, <clears throat> we're actually beginning probably six or seven part sermon or six or seven part series. It started out as one sermon and uh, it was going to be on the church. But man, as I started studying, I was like, man, we can't do this in one Sunday. So we're not afraid to hunker down and enjoy things slowly. So that's what we're going to do for the next six weeks, seven weeks maybe. We're going to ask and answer, hopefully lovingly, but hopefully biblically, we're going to ask and answer the question, what is the church? 
for emphasis, I put it, I know it's not good grammar, but just for emphasis, what even is the church? They're everywhere, so what even is the church? It seems like a real obvious question with an obvious answer, but it's really not. I want to offer three things before we climb into our passages this morning. Three reasons why this question needs to be lovingly asked and biblically answered. First of all, is that our cities are full of churches. I did a little study this week on on, uh, per capita churches. I found... I didn't find the evidence. You know, you hear people say, and I've even said it before, I've heard this, but I couldn't find it, evidence that this is the highest saturated church culture, church environment in the world. I didn't find the evidence for that. But here's what I did find. In the South, the average number of churches per capita is 15 churches per 10,000 people. 15 churches per 10,000 people. And that's in the South. You could say Bible Belt sort of area. In Greenville... There are 95 churches, 94 actually, I counted this week, Christian churches. I didn't count some of the odd things, per 25,000. So there's 15 per 10,000 in the south. In Greenville, there's 94 per 24,000. So while I didn't find the Guinness record, if it ever even is, that's some pretty strong evidence that we're in a very highly saturated church environment. So it makes sense for us to ask the question or to at least engage what even is the church because we're surrounded by them. And the fact that we're surrounded by them does not mean that they're all churches as biblically defined. Oh, no, you didn't. Some of y'all are saying, oh, no, he didn't. He didn't say that. That seems uncharitable for us to even consider that possibility, doesn't it? Man, I've been wrestling with that all week. Actually, I wrestled for like Monday but then the Lord showed me somewhere I didn't wrestle anymore, so I shouldn't say I wrestled all week. But you may be wrestling with this notion right now that I could say of 94 Christian churches in this community that there may be possibly not all church as defined by our Bibles. Here's something for you to consider. Here's what the Lord showed me. It wasn't like the clouds parted or anything. He just led me to this. The fact that anyone can buy or rent a building... Anybody. If you got some credit, you can go rent a building. If you have some money, you can go buy a building. And you can buy crosses anywhere. Or you can make them. Man, you go out into your shed, you get a couple pieces of wood, you saw them and glue them together. Blam, you got a cross. Stick that thing up on the side of that building, man. And then before you know it, you got what people might refer to as a church. Did you see that new church on the north side of town? Oh, I did. You know anything about it? No. I can't believe it's a new church. Yeah, that's cool. Automatically, a building, a joker, and a couple pieces of wood, and you got a church. I also found online <clears throat> that same anyone that I'm talking about could get ordained online in just a few minutes. For real. I did a little search for online ordination, Google search. And man, it was bam, 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 bam. The first couple, here's one, Universal Life Monastery. Um, Here's all you need to get ordained. Put your true and legal name on the online form. Put some factual information. You have to tell the truth about what they're asking you. You have to double check your name and email address, and you have to capitalize where appropriate. Within 72 hours, you can have your ordination. 
And in fact, they have ordained over 20 million ministers ordained worldwide. 20 million people, possibly. Now, I'm sure there's some believers in there. But 20 million people, in just a matter of a few minutes, got ordained online. It says the Universal Life Church ordains clergy for life for free. Each denomination, here's kind of their pitch, has its own special requirements that its ministers comply with or perform to gain their allegiance. The Universal Life Church is the only religious and spiritual denomination in the world that opens its door to all and welcomes all who ask to get ordained, granting ordination without question as to religious and spiritual beliefs. Did you hear that? All you need is a building and some wood and a few minutes and an internet connection and know how to spell your name correctly. Over 20 million ministers have been ordained online by ULC. After you've completed the ordination form, you'll receive a confirmation email which serves as a receipt of your ordination. Our staff views every ordination application and generally processes your ordination within 72 hours. Blam, just like that. And the bottom of the page, it says, Be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. Does that break your heart like it breaks mine? But all you need is a building and a cross, a few minutes online, and internet connection, and blam, you can be up and running. Anyone can have a building and meet weekly and share a message and sing some songs and have a cross outside and can possibly not be the church as biblically defined. Now, for those of you who are struggling with this, and it seems uncharitable, I want you to consider this. Consider if it was legal to get online in a few minutes and get a medical license. If all you needed was to spell your name correctly, an internet connection, fill out the form correctly, put your factual name, no nicknames, and then within 72 hours, you've got a medical license. You rent a building. You go to the medical equipment store, buy yourself one of those green outfits, get yourself a lab coat, stethoscope, that little light that's on top that I've never seen anybody really use. And you could put the little caduceus on the outside, you know, with the snakes intertwining the pole with the wings up top. Put clinic or hospital on the outside. Go to work. Is that unthinkable for you? Are you glad there are standards that keep that from happening? Are you glad there are checks and balances? I am. I'm glad people can't just get online and do that. Think about veterinary medicine. I care about my pets enough to be glad that Someone has to actually go to school and has to be certified. And there's legal checks and balances involved with even getting a veterinary license. Would you be okay with school teachers teaching your children when all they did was just put their name on an online form and um, had 72 hours for it to run through and then they got their license there, the certification That would be troubling for you. Would you settle for schools with no checks and balances for who's qualified to teach? I'm thankful for some standards. And I'm thankful that these standards are enforced in medical care, pet care, and education. Bad news for churches is there's no enforcement agency and we don't want to be that. We don't want to be the enforcement agency that's running around church enforcement team identifying what's a church and what's not. We don't want to be that, but we do want to have a handle on God's definition of the church. So, 
Here's three just initial reasons. You can identify what is his when you leave home and establish yourself in another city. Young people, when you go off to college or you go off to a job or you leave home, you leave town, and you need to try and identify, okay, where's the church? I've got 94 of them to choose from. How do I discern what is true biblically? What do I look for? That's a great start for young people that might be leaving home or maybe just for moving people, people that get a job somewhere else and they need to go look for a new church home. That's one good reason. Another good reason is we want to do this so you can identify what's true when you are left wanting in your current church. When you are left wanting in your current church and you begin to look for another It helps you on so many levels because you can actually discern why am I left wanting? Am I being left? Am I left wanting because of biblical shortcomings or just because of personal preferences? That's one thing. But if I am left wanting biblically, there's some biblically some things missing, and I want to go looking for the church, I can know what I'm looking for. And thirdly, so we as Crosspoint can walk in obedience to his intentions for the church. Oh, man, we want to nail down what is biblically the church. We need to make a clear statement about what the church is so you can discern what's what and so you can hold us accountable as elders, deacons, each other to be true and stay true, whatever the culture may expect or even whatever the Christian culture may want. We want this Bible to define who we are and what we are. That's one good reason we need to make that statement. We need to engage over the next six, seven weeks what is the church. Here's another one. It's much shorter. With no clear expression of what the church is, it can become whatever we want it to be. I'll give you an example. I see this so often as I'm talking to people. You know, being a pastor, people want to talk to you about their church experience. When you're not around Greenville, I mean, Cross Point people, when you're talking to people that are outside of the church, they want to tell you their church story. And it is not infrequent that I hear someone say, man, I just go to the woods I, I had a bad experience with people. Man, nothing new under the sun. But I had a bad experience with people, so I retreated to the woods. So we camp week after week, or we have some activity, something that takes us away, and it's just us and God and nature. We have church out there. With no tidy definition, with no biblical definition of church, you can get away with that. Who's going to confront that? Church is whatever you want it to be. We can claim if two or more are gathered in his name, then we're having church. But that's a poor handling of that passage in Matthew 18 that has to do with church discipline. It's not defining who's the church. Where two or more are gathered in his name and enjoying each other and enjoying him are a couple Christians hanging out and having a good time together. That doesn't mean that's the church. Because if two or more are gathered in his name, then who needs the rest of you? I'll just grab a couple, too, that I really like. Third, with a loose definition of church, we can have such a small and loose and convenient definition of the church that the group that we hang out with, maybe a bunch of GCS parents, can become our church. I'm not knocking GCS. Y'all know I love GCS. But those of you who are around maybe a church, and I'm not talking, I'm talking about any, name the the Christian school. You see families that can gravitate to the community of the Christian school at the expense of the church. 
I know people that are at GCS that are brokenhearted about that reality. We can retreat to find a bunch of other Christians and call that our church. Or we can do a, have kind of a virtual church in Facebook. Find some other Christians on Facebook. And we kind of talk about some cool Christian churchly things. And man, my church is online. That's a loosey-goosey definition of church. So we need a good biblical understanding of what the church is. And here's a third reason that has to do with Brad's, Brad's sermon from a couple weeks ago about missions. If missions is planting the church where the church is non-existent or weak, and ministry is an, is an outgrowth of that planted church, we need to be able to define what is the church so we know what we're planting. So we know what we're working toward and praying toward and burdened about. And we also need that as a tool to diagnose, well, where is it not? Six years ago, did Greenville need a church plant called Cross Point? With, at that time, 98 Christian churches in this community? Somebody thought we did. A couple years ago, we looked at commerce and we said, I don't think the church is non-existent, but we said, well, maybe the church is weak and they need a plant. And we had some families that were burdened about it who are now planting in commerce. We need to know what the church is to be able to say, what are we planting and where is it not? Or where is it weak? And I believe we can do that truthfully, lovingly, and charitably. If we're bound by charity alone, then we'll never engage the truth about what the high standard of church is. So we're going to christen this fall with the next six or seven weeks on the church. It's going to be fun. This first place we're going this morning, the first thing, we're going to engage one reality of the church each week. And this first one that we're going to engage this morning is the church is a people. Turn to Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> the church is a people. <clears throat> I'm going to share a passage, kind of an excerpt, from Stephen's sermon before he was stoned. From two, uh, chap chapter 7, verse 2 through 17, and then we're going to jump right on over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And you'll understand why we're going this direction. I want to give you kind of a bird's eye view of God's redemptive story. Stephen had one sermon that he was preaching before he dies. He's a deacon that could preach. And he's bringing the word. And he kind of gives a summary of the whole redemptive story. So it's a really nice place to go to get kind of the bird's eye view of this story that we're part of as the church. Acts chapter 7 verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He doesn't start way, I mean, immediately at the beginning, at the very beginning, beginning, Adam and Eve. He doesn't start at Noah, but he starts shortly after Noah with a guy named Abraham. Our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, Abe, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there to, into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance. Keep your eye on this football called Abraham. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give Abe a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land. Here's kind of a forth, forth telling for Abram. 
You're, this people that I'm going to make you into will be sojourners in a land belonging to other people who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. Here's some new characters. And circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs, Joseph being one of them. Bird's eye view. Okay, keep watching. And the patriarchs. This is the 12 of them, jealous of Joseph. The 11 are jealous of this one, Joseph. Sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. By this point, this family that's built is about 75 persons strong in verse 14. And Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now, jump over to Deuteronomy. The story continues, kind of going backwards, but it's fleshing out this bird's eye view of this redemptive story. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you, this is speaking to the people that this has been describing. This offspring of Abraham that would be born in the fiery furnace of Egypt. For you people, you are a holy people. The same people that's spoken of over in Acts chapter 17. This holy people are set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Here people, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. You specific people. And it's because he's keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, you people, from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And this is a key verse. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. What I want you to see from this bird's eye view of this story where Stephen kind of captures the first part of it and here the rest of it's shared and then the point is shared. What I want you to see is that God is about the business of creating a people and redeeming a people. So that they will know that our Lord is the Lord God. 
There's a motive and a point here. His reputation is built on people building and people rescuing. And in fact, if you really want to take it all in, an unlikely people. The old Israel was born in Canaan and raised in Egypt. And the old Israel was led out of Egypt through mighty acts of judgment. You may be familiar with the plagues. We'll engage those in a few minutes. And then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then a people, here, a people, crossed the Jordan on dry ground into the promised land. God engaged them as a people. Their guilt or innocence was declared as a people. He communicated with them as a people. He judged them as a people. He blessed them as a people. Now turn to Daniel chapter 9. We've been reading through the Bible as a family for the last couple of years. And we're moving real slow. It's like a chapter or two a day, usually just a chapter. But the last chapter that we read as a family was Daniel chapter 9. And man, it just so exposed my individual heart. And it so spoke to what's unfolding here in front of you, if you're still attentive. Listen to the heart of Daniel. Let me just kind of give you a bird's eye view. This, where he's speaking here, where he's praying. There's a king of Babylon now. His name is Darius. The nation of Israel is no longer in Jerusalem and in Israel. They're actually in bondage in Babylon and in other places. But Daniel is in Babylon. This is about a thousand years after this exodus that we just read about. This people is in Babylon because of the roller coaster that is First and Second Kings. If you've ever read First and Second Kings, it's good king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king. It's a roller coaster. Cut, it, cut down the high places, burn them up, grind them up, put back up the high places and go worship foreign gods. So the whole nation of Israel is being drawn from their promised land into Babylon. And Daniel is now praying to God and mediating for his people in regards to that specific thing. Listen to how this unfolds. Then I, Daniel, turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. Daniel's just one little dude. When I say Daniel, I want you to hear peace. Peace. Tiny, tiny little piece. Tiny little cog. Tiny little part. Okay, so tiny little piece, tiny little cog, tiny little part, turned his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Sound familiar? Now listen to what he says next. We. We. Daniel? I mean, I thought Daniel was the man. Daniel, you know, he didn't bow, bow the knee, you know. He went into the lion's den. He was so faithful. He went into his upper room, flung open the window, and prayed right in front of everybody. He wasn't even care, scared. But right here he says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, the roller coaster that is First and Second Kings, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, hear it, 
us belongs open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he said before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. What I want you to hear from this tiny little piece, part, cog, is us, we, our, all Israel. He prays forgiveness for his entire people. He sees himself fitting into one big story. Westerners, we don't think that way. He sees himself fitting into one big story. The Westerner... In 2009, likely, if this were Daniel now, he would be praying, Oh, Lord, forgive me for thinking about that hot Babylonian girl yesterday. Ooh. Oh, Lord, forgive me for being short with King Darius. Lord, bless my personal private time with you between just me and you, God. That's the Western prayer. Bless my personal time with you because I so wanted to be special with just you and me, God. Because really, this whole thing's just about me and you, isn't it? But not Daniel, man. Daniel's we and our and us and all Israel. He sees himself fitting into one big story, a tiny piece, begging forgiveness for the other pieces. And the whole, the people of God. Man, our Western minds hate this. We just hate that notion of just being a piece or a cog or a part. We want to be individuals. And we want to be unique. Christy and I went to um, the mall. Was it Friday night? Yeah. Is it North Park? Is that the name of it? North Point. I'm going to call it all kind of things. North Park Mall, man. That's, some, that's a serious mall. You been, been in that mall? You can't buy an envelope in most of those stores. <laughs> Walking around the displays and the mannequins are wearing things that I don't ever see anybody wearing. Maybe they are unique. It's just one person buying it. But the whole store is fueled by that one purchase. Walk around the mall and I'm thinking about these, the new styles. Get the new style for the fall. I'm looking at all these things that are screaming at us. And I start thinking about advertising and individualism. Let me show you some things I found about advertising. First of all, it's just a great quote. Advertising may be described as the science of arresting human intelligence long enough to get money from it. That's in 1924 that was written. The science of arresting human intelligence long enough to get money from it. I found this on a website. Guy was uh, kind of had a blog on advertising and individualism. So these are his words. I don't remember the guy's name, but if you want to find it, I'll show it to you. I just thought it was well put. Said individualism has become to be understood as one self-expression and self-reliance, the ability to be independent and powerful. The counter to individualism is conformity. Ick. Icky conformity. 
An Adidas ad promotes individualism with Muhammad Ali running while a narrative states, I didn't see this ad, but apparently it's out a couple years ago. He's running down the road, got some guys working out with him, and they're running behind him. And, and, and the, the narrative states, there are those that listen to everybody else and those that listen to themselves. The ad concludes soberly that there are very few who do the latter. The cultural value of individuality, self-actualization, independence is the selling value for the product. Adidas shoes or whatever. Now, this is so funny, man. This just cracks me up. Adidas aims to be conceived as a product that individuals, champions, and independent thinkers purchase. Yet the paradox is that the more people that buy the product, which is the aim of the ad, the more homogenous the brand. The more homogenous, the more conforming. You look around and everybody's wearing those shoes that said it indicated I would be an individual if I wore those. Wait a second, I've been duped. The ad narrator states, there are those that listen to others and those that listen to themselves. And then it concludes that few do the latter in a salute to free thinkers. However, the ad's goal is for others to listen to its sales pitch, which would not be considered free thinking in practice. It's ironic. We are inundated with messages emphasizing individuality and uniqueness. Messages that are anti-Daniel, that are anti-people, messages that are anti-church. <clears throat> I have a, a science background, so I appreciate research. I'm going to share just a few studies with you briefly. I want you to see the problem. This first study, you can find some pretty cool stuff online, legit stuff. This first study is a comparison of cultural values and television advertising in the UK, Netherlands, and Germany. They compare U.S. with other places. This guy reviewed a collection of studies uh, between the U.S. and other countries in the area of advertising. And one study specifically compared the U.S. with the U.K. looking at beer commercials. They looked at 62 commercials, 24 commercials for the 12 U.S. brands, and 38 commercials for 19 British brands. They examined cultural values, rhetorical style, advertising appeals, and the occasion for product usage. The highest scores found in U.S. commercials were for individualism, independence, and achievement. Now, isn't that ironic? Achievement. Achieve something and drink beer by yourself. I just thought that was funny. The highest scores found in the U.S. were for individualism, independence, and achievement. These were the lowest in the U.K., interestingly. In the U.K., the highest factors were eccentricity and tradition. Tradition. Another study compared U.S. commercials with Chinese commercials. 616 U.S. commercials with 486 Chinese commercials. The dominant values in the Chinese commercials were family, technology, and tradition. Whereas the U.S. dominantly reflected enjoyment, economy, and that's right, individualism. Another study is the multi-level analysis of individuals and cultures found Korean magazine advertisements compared with American advertisings, advertisements, found that Korean ones actually focused on things like family well-being and in-group goals and interdependence, while Americans focused on uniqueness. That's the itch that our advertisings are scratching. 
That's the thing that's so in our culture that we don't even realize we are surrounded by the cultural treasure of individuality and uniqueness. I found something online on a website called WikiHow. Have ever heard of WikiHow? I think it's kind of an offspring of Wikipedia, where it's kind of the community defines things and explains things. WikiHow is kind of the, the community, the virtual community explaining how to. It's building this database of how to. And I think pretty much anybody can contribute. So this is not like some scholar contributed this. But I thought it interesting on this website, how to be an individual teen. How to be an individual teen. Here's the steps. For an individual style, shop at the little boutiques. I can't even spell that. And even charity shops. And customize your own clothes so that at least you know you won't have the same t-shirt as anyone else. Heaven forbid. Get a new cool haircut that gives you an edge. Don't be scared of being rejected by saying what you think. And maybe you'll find some mates that will be more suited to your new good attitude. Try new things and have fun being one in a million. How about that? Here's the tips. Don't change to fit in with a certain crowd unless you feel that changing from geek to whatever or something to geek, I don't know what the term is, is, what, is how you're really meant to be. You determine that. Only do what you want to do, but don't do this all the time as your friends may start to find you selfish. But always stand up for yourself. It's an interesting combination, isn't it? And only be who you feel most comfortable being. So if our teens jump online and think, man, I want to be an individual, and they just do a Google search for teen and into, in fact, just put individual. It's one of the first choices that our virtual community is defining. We are surrounded by cultural treasure of individuality and uniqueness, but the church, the biblical church, does not treasure these things. The biblical church does not cater to these itches that we so love scratched. Make me an individual. The church isn't filled with individuals. It's filled with people who are walking with God together as members of one another. Like Daniel's praying for a people instead of praying for some little personal relationship that he and God have where it's just him and God. Daniel's view, listen, y'all get this. Daniel's view, when you view yourself as part of a people, his view is panoramic while at the same time he maintains that he's microscopic. He's just a microscopic little cog, part, piece in a panoramic story. But he's a critical little cog, piece, and part that wants to be faithful. What you all have to understand this morning is that the church is a continuation of this story. We're part of this same redemptive story. If Stephen were still alive... If Stephen was still preaching, he would be talking about what God is doing now in the church. We're part of this story that's still unfolding. I want to show you some strong evidence for the church as a people. Four different places we're going to go. Galatians chapter 3. And we'll move quickly. I don't want you to get bogged down, but I do want you to engage this. Galatians chapter 3. Let me give you a kind of a context for the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is written to a church that Paul planted that had been bewitched. They had a group of Jewish believers, and I use the term loosely believers, who snuck into the church. 
I don't know that it was like really overt where they were wearing black hats and overcoats. They probably looked just like everybody else. They snuck in with a message of grace plus something. Grace plus circumcision is what they said. Actually, faith plus circumcision. And what happens when you add something to grace, it no longer becomes grace. It becomes works. So Paul said, you know what? I hope the knife slips. That's what he said. I hope the knife slips with this message that they brought into this church. So he's addressing these Judaizers. And in chapter 3, verse 7, he says this. Know then, you believers in Galatia, that this is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those of faith, excuse me, who are the sons of Abraham. So that's why we can sing Father Abraham's song. Someone asked me a couple months ago. Because he's our daddy too. He's the Galatians' daddy too. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abe, shall all the nations be blessed, including in 2009, a little old town of 25,000 east of Dallas called Greenville. In you, Abe, all the nations will be blessed. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now look over at chapter 6. Starting in verse 14. Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sung that this morning. Far be it from me to boast in anything. My Judaism, my achievements. Far be it, far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, Judaizers nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And that word than is better translated even or that is. Peace and mercy be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. He is using Israel of God synonymously with the church. You hear me frequently refer to the church as the new Israel. It comes from passages just like this. Where Paul's saying, anyone that walks by this rule of boasting in the cross, of being crucified to the world and the world to them. One who walks by this rule, that word rule is the word canon. Anyone who walks by this word is one that's going to be blessed with this peace and mercy and referring to them as the Israel of God. This is a new people. This church is the new Israel. Now turn to Ephesians. Just a couple pages over. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Starting in verse 14. The context for Ephesians is Paul's talking to Jews and Gentiles. The wall's broken down between you guys. And now you're a whole new man. You're about to hear that. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made us both Jews and Gentiles, here peoples, the Jewish people and the Gentile people. He made us both one. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Now in context, when he's just referred to the Jews as a man and the Greeks as a man, and now he's going to make them into one new man. The better context is to understand that he's making them into a whole new people. 
a whole new humanity. That would be a great translation for this. He's made himself into one new humanity in place of the two. And so making peace, he might reconcile us both, this new humanity, to God in one body, here the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. When you view things differently like that, it changes the way you read previously very individualistic passages, like turn over the next page to chapter 4, verse 22. I bet you've heard this preached before. I've heard it preached before where it's speaking to you as the individual. Put off your old self. That's the same word that's used in the previous passage that I just read for humanity, our manhood, our people. Put off your old people, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new humanity, the new people, the church, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When you begin to read these passages in view of the context, it changes the way you view everything. And the Western mind that hears self, oh, I put off the old bin and put on the new bin. Hear me roar. That changes. Where you look around, you're going, people of God, let's put off the old humanity, the old worldliness that we were all subject to, and let's put on this new humanity of the people of God. It changes everything. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. I want y'all to hang with me. Man, if you're getting sleepy or hungry, re-engage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. This letter is written by Peter to the saints that are all over the Asian area. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He writes to them in chapter 2, verse 9. He's speaking to believers. And he writes this. He says, you are a chosen, what? Race. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you know that? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were just Abraham, if this was written to a Jew, the Jew's thinking. Once we were just Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. But then through the fiery furnace of Egypt, we became a nation born by the hand of God. But here now, 2009, we can read this passage. And here, once we were just Jeremy and Katie, Kiesnick. Once you were just Jeremy, just hanging out there, Jeremy. Once you were Derek, Derek and Hope. Once you were Scott. Once you were Joshua. Once you were Jeff and Ginevra, Jeff and Cindy. Once you were just Sandy. Once you were Rhonda, once you were Ben and Christy and Daniel and Evan and Luke, but now we're a race. Now we're a nation. Now we're a people. You hear that? Changes everything. The church is a people. Now for my favorite, Revelation chapter 9. 
Oh, it's my favorite. It's so good. We so miss it because we so seldom look for God's hand in our entire Bibles. Before I share with you from Revelation chapter 9, I want to tell you that the Exodus is an important part of our story, not just the story of Israel. Where there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph goes off to Egypt. Stephen, his last sermon, he takes it back to that. That's how important that story is. Joseph goes off to Egypt. There's famine in the land. The rest of the brothers and daddy come. They all die there. The Pharaoh that's there forgets about old Joseph. Who's Joseph? And look at all these Jews and Israelites who got running around, these Jacobites. Let's put them to work. Maybe they could help us build some pyramids. So let's put them to work. So over the course of 400 years, this little visit to Egypt becomes 400 years of slavery. And God leading his people out of that context is like a typology. It's like a type of what he's doing with this people right now. He's leading us out of this fallen world. Just like he led them out through mighty acts of judgment, the Nile turning the blood, frogs, thick as thieves, gnats, flies, dead livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then Passover, where the firstborn in every home dies. Just like he led them out, he's leading us out of a fallen world through mighty acts of judgment. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know it's a pretty mysterious book. It's more of a collection of images than it is a timeline. One of the images we see is this picture of tribulation. And during this tribulation, they'll see things, this world will see things like hail. Big, big hail. Not dentless, paintless repair hail. Serious, like car crushing, house crushing hail. Darkness that could be felt. Fire. Locusts that look like horses with women's hair and teeth like lions. Earthquakes. Fire raining down. Flying mountains. Falling stars. And look at Revelation chapter 9 verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by what? These plagues. This picture in Revelation that's speaking, we believe, in large part about some future events, although some of them have already taken place. It's talking about this seven-year concentrated time of judgment. Through mighty acts of judgment, God will liberate another people, just like he's done before. And he even refers to them as plagues. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, that sound like Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. God led his people out of Egypt through mighty acts of judgment, and he's going to lead his people out of this fallen world through more mighty acts of judgment. Look at Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. Here's the call. Here's the most beautiful call. I don't know that this call was spoken on the night of the Exodus at midnight when he led his people out of Egypt, but it could have been. Listen to this call, a mighty voice from heaven. A call that, man, I hope, if we haven't already gone on to be with the Lord, a call that we hear. It's a call that we should hear now in 2009. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share 
in her plagues. Come out of her, my people. It's the call for the church to come out of the world. And it's not just a future thing. It's do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind now. It's live like we're drawn out of this world now. It's not just a future thing that's going to happen some future midnight. It's unfolding right now. Do not live as individuals, but as faithful microscopic cogs, true pieces with a panoramic view in the God-glorifying story of people making, people building, and people redeeming. That is the church. Man, I want us to view the church rightly. I want us to view it biblically. And just considering the church as a people deals with some serious problems. The first of which, which is really obvious, but it's really not, is the church as a building. The earliest known church building was around 200 A.D. It was a house That's where people met for 200 years or 100 and however many, 70 years. They met in houses because it was illegal to meet. So they hunkered down and hiding out and trying to find places to meet. But the earliest known dedicated church building was about 200 A.D. where it was a two-room house where they knocked out that center wall and they started saying, let's meet here. And people started calling that the church. After that, they started building something called basilicas. Constantine took charge of Rome about 312 A.D. And it went from being illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire to actually being the religion of the empire. So they started building these these weird structures that you may have seen before, the basilicas. And then shortly after that, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built in Jerusalem. And then as part of this whole thing, every holy spot that they could conjure up from the baptism site to the birthplace, let's plant a cathedral there or a basilica. Let's put a building there. 1,800 years of a developing view of the church as a building, but if we go back to the Word, we find church as a people, members of one another. For 200 two or 300 years, when someone said church, people didn't think building. For two or three hundred years, when someone said church, people thought a people. A group of people hunkered down enjoying the Lord together. Baptizing, taking the Lord's Supper, doing the things that we're going to engage in these next few weeks. That the church does. For three hundred years, church meant people. This deals with that. It also deals with church as something you attend. Something you attend, that language, I'm going to church, fits with church as a building. If it's a building, then it's got to be something that you go to. We've got to go there to do church. I would rather you, given in light of this, seeing yourself as part of a people, call this corporate worship. We're going to corporate worship. You can't go to something that you are. This deals with that. You're a people. It's not a building. It's not something that you go do. Because if it's something that you go do, then it's contained to a day of the week when you go do it. You are the church. And the church has an activity. Instead, it's an identity. It's not an activity. What goes with seeing yourself as a people is a view to a heritage. Like Paul told Timothy, Timothy, remember what your mama and your grandmama taught you, Lois and Eunice. 
When you see yourself as a people, you could imagine old Daniel. Somebody telling Daniel, Daniel, remember what Martha and Mildred taught you, Danny boy. You have a view to a heritage where you remember the cogs before you and you equip the little cogs after you because the story is dependent on all the cogs being in their place. You have a view to continuity and responsibility like Daniel, a critical piece, albeit microscopic, a cog in the big picture of the redemptive story with responsibility. I got to walk in what he's called me to do, albeit small. Because it's part of a big story. And you have a view to identity. It shapes your decisions to know who you are. When confronted with an opportunity to sin, you can say, well, what am I supposed to do here? I can't remember. You know, I'm sure somebody's told me something to do. That has a certain strength. But I'm going to tell you what has more strength when you're confronted with an opportunity to sin is the question, who am I? Is participating in this, does that reconcile with who I am? I'm part of a people, and that doesn't fit. It doesn't reconcile with this people or who I am. We're going to engage more about who and what the church is in the next few weeks. This morning, I want to pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together and do what the church does. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will find us true. I pray that in these next few weeks you will expose more and more about what the church is and that we can cling to that as desperately as possible, knowing that it's true and knowing that it's your design, that we can stay the course in areas where we are faithful and in any area where we're not faithful in being the biblical church, that you will convict us and shed light on that. And then we will repent and walk in the ways that we should. Lord, we are so thankful that there is a system of standards. There is an explanation of what is the church if we go and dig for it and look for it. And Lord, I pray for those contexts, those situations, those churches that may not be the biblical church. Just as I prayed what areas that we may not be true, that you expose light on that. I pray that you will shed light on those churches that may just be in anyone with a cross slapped on the outside with you being whatever we want to determine you to be. Lord, I pray that through salty and bright and aromatic and loving and out loud worshipers that we can add some truth to those contexts. People that we work beside, people that we live beside, people that we may be friends or family with that we can give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect. All the while desperately trying to be faithful in the little cog opportunity that you've given us called our lives. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for your goodness and your grace, your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.